absolutely delighted that the next guest on Not The Top 20 podcast, NTT 20 Meets, uh, Paul Hurst. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Um, just like our previous guests, you will be uh, very much known by our listeners because over the last few years especially, you've managed in all three divisions in the EFL since we've been covering the league's closely the last three or four years. So we've spoken about you and your teams a lot. Uh, for, for anyone listening uh, who is uh, less up to date, Paul, uh, you were a professional footballer. You were a left back, played for Rotherham for 15 years and then a really short loan at Burton just at the end. <laughs> yeah, I had to uh, at least experience one club. Been looking forward to sitting down with you for the last few weeks just to finish off this potted history. Uh, you, you are... Uh, football manager as well and have been with Ilkeston Town, Boston United, Grimsby Town, Shrewsbury Town and Ipswich Town. So not that many towns left now. (laughs) And and obviously most recently of Ipswich having left the club uh, after just over a dozen games uh, at the start of this season. Um, So I guess to start with, for the first time basically in your management career, you've got a bit of time off. So how how have you been filling your time? Yeah, as you say, it's the first time that I've... uh experience getting sacked so he was you know I think you're not sure how you will react to that I had my, my thoughts and it probably played out true um, but I was the timing of it um, I think four days later my wife and children were booked to go on holiday um, so I toyed with the thoughts of joining them and, and that's what I did so I had 10 days away Great. and speaking to managers a lot more experienced than myself suggested it would be a good idea um, in all honesty I don't know if it was or not um, might there have been immediate opportunities do you think uh, I don't think so I, and at the end of the day look if, if something if the phone had have gone that was still with me very much <laughs> um, I'd have happily throw, uh, flown back home Yeah, but it's you know I think whether you you've got your own pride and you have your thoughts um, and they're not just going to disappear just because you've gone to a different country mm. but at the same time it was nice I think to you know get away from home just for a little while uh, not that I spent that much time there we we've been at Ipswich yeah. Um, so yeah that that was the first thing that I did and then after that a lot of the time really has been spent out watching games. Going running, walking my dog, um, and just uh, I guess what most people a normal life. Mm. Um, how, how hard is it psychologically when you don't have the routine that you've been used to for the last X amount of years, and you have to stay disciplined within a new routine, uh, and also reflecting on on what would have been a huge disappointment, um, what happened at Ipswich. That's for any you know thinking on a human level it must be tough just within your own head yeah i think you are, i think to, in truth while i was still at ipswich um you know I, i'm a manager that and a person rightly or wrongly that thinks of, of six games the six game rule and if you don't win in six then there's a chance you might get sacked now as you said at the start i, I did get longer than that i think 14 games it was mm. Uh, and only had that one victory, which I think was possibly twelfth game. Um, so from that point of view, I was given given the time, and I fully accept that results weren't good enough. But while you're there and you're in that sort of run, I think you are starting to almost reflect. You're analysing constantly of you know what, how can we change it? What can we do better? Uh, and naturally, once 
there was a part in there's more of that that goes on mm. um, but I think just making sure you know I've got a, two children they get up for school in the morning so you know doing that most days and then like I said whether it's getting out running or taking the dog or both that helps you you know at least have a small piece of structure to your yeah, day that's and a I, big job in itself <laughs> being a father yeah well it is with, with my children yeah um, but no I think that's that's important I think that's something I've had an advantage of over my assistant for example who's not reached that stage where he, he hasn't got children and he hasn't got a dog <laughs> um, so, and I think that you know that's naturally those things fill up some of your day yeah um, so that, that's pleasing your relationship with your assistant Chris yeah. Throughout the English game, you do see sort of pairings and, and duos that go together uh, in the next job. It must be difficult, though, when uh, if you're both in, in a sort of limbo, yourself and Chris, you want to stay together. But I suppose you have to sort of accept with each other that there might be an opportunity that comes up for him that wouldn't involve you and maybe vice versa. How much are you staying in contact with your assistant manager, Chris, from your previous jobs while you're both out of work? Uh, quite often yeah. in truth what's happening uh, yeah. yeah whether it's messaging whether it's phone calls whether we've been to a couple of games together um, at one tonight w- with him and I think we it's just about being honest w- with each other I, I've you know said to him and I don't mind you know going on record so to speak if a, if a job comes up then I would want Chris to work with me mm-hmm. and the reason being is I trust him which is very important, um, but not only that, I think he's very good at what he does, yeah. and any success that I've deemed to have had, um, he's been a big part of that. So, from my point of view, it would be you know silly not to to want him to work mm. uh, or work with him again. So, but at the same time, you know, I've had a, certainly the last few years we've had conversation. I've said to him that if he feels uh, he wants to try and get into management himself. Uh, there's no issue, well, you know, whatsoever on my side. I think he he could make a very good manager himself. But you know, I'm probably there's that many people, myself included, out of work. Yeah. I think he finds it difficult to see where an opportunity might come up for him. Yeah. Um, but we enjoy working together. We're on the same page, and for the main, it, it's work. So we'd look to try and let that relationship continue. Very similar to my uh, relationship with George, the other host of the podcast, who's not here today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I wanted to, we're, we're going to get into uh, Ipswich and Shrewsbury, Grimsby, Boston and Ilkeston. Uh, I want to just ask about something I, I, I saw. You were on the great Alan Biggs's show, Sheffield Live, a few weeks ago. Um, talking a, uh, a bit about Sheffield Wednesday and I hadn't realised until I saw that that you grew up a Sheffield Wednesday fan. Um, now I like to use these sit-downs with yourself and others to ask questions that I've always wondered but that yeah. most serious media outlets don't ask because they <laughs> deem them not important. So my question is, uh, when you're in the game, for example, as a player at Rotherham for 15 years, as a manager at all the teams you've been a manager at, can you maintain that fandom for another club that you're not working for? Or does being so consumed by your here and now with another club sort of dull that childlike enthusiasm for a club that, that most fans keep throughout their life? Yeah, I, 
for me, it's it's been difficult. I I would always want Sheffield Wednesday to do well, and you know see them do well. And when uh, I moved to Ipswich, for example, you know it was one of the first fixtures that you look at when they're playing at Hillsborough. Mm. And thankfully, it was one of the earlier fixtures, yeah. so I managed to go there. Albeit we lost, and had a man sent off very controversially. Um, but I, I think it might be different for different people. But for me, it was really difficult, especially playing um, at Rotherham, who are a rival of Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah, and I think that caused some fans to have major doubts or confusion about when we. When I played against Sheffield Wednesday, well, is Hurst gonna yeah. go into fifty fifties or is and he gonna pull out? For some strange reason, <laughs> and maybe it was to try and you know prove that that wasn't the case. I actually wanted to be Sheffield Wednesday probably more than I wanted to be Sheffield way. United, yeah. because I, I maybe didn't want anyone doubting your commitment to it, and you know that had never ever been the case. Same as you know going back and, and managing against them, um, you know I wanted my team to win. Um, so, so it is difficult, and, and again, now you've got some time off. Have you felt yourself warming to Sheffield Wednesday again, like going to games uh, and stuff? Ne- never went off them. Um, <laughs> I've seen him, and I, I, I watched them on TV against Chelsea, and I, I found it a, a difficult watch. But hopefully now, you know, Steve Bruce is in place, yeah. and I, look, unfortunately, I think he, he, you know, things haven't gone well for the football club for the last few years. It's an extremely difficult job, whoever is in charge. And, you know, I hope that he can get the, the team and the club firing again. But it's, it's extremely difficult. But that, that support never, you know, it doesn't win altogether. You still look out. It's one of the first results you look for. Um, but it, it definitely changes you. I think working in football, and I include playing in that, but certainly when you go to being a manager... It changes how you watch football. Yeah, I, I the very first game I went to, which was two days after I'd been sacked, I think Chesterfield Wrexham. Mm-hmm. I went along with a friend and we were watching it, and I started saying a couple of things to him, and he said, "Relax." He said, "It don't matter with that if they aren't doing this or they're doing <laughs> that. Just enjoy watching the game." Yeah. But even games on TV. It's very rare that you get to a point where you get so engrossed and you just enjoy sort of the drama. Most, You're looking most at most fans who watch the ball when they watch on TV. Uh, it sounds like you you might be watching shape. Yeah, you're marking. looking at the shape of the team. You know, uh, people, Man City are the biggest example. So people say, "Oh, fantastic football team," but how many people would actually kind of? look and understand why they're so good and how do they get out of certain situations, mm. certain areas and then without the ball, why do they get the ball back so quickly? I think for me out of possession that's where a lot of getting the ball back starts from and then you can, depending on how good a team you are, you mm. can dominate possession more but it's like fans want to see goals, 100% get that, I want to see goals as a manager but for me, there's very few teams that ever have success that are that have a leaky defence. Mm. And again, it doesn't always go hand in hand that you can have a strong defence and score lots of goals. Yeah. Only the very best manage to do that. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's, if you if you are a solid and well organised, disciplined team, are willing to work hard, you always give yourself a chance, and that's when you can get a team perhaps that haven't got as good individuals. Mm. 
to be successful. I'm thinking of a certain Shrewsbury Town team, <laughs> um, 27-2018 season. Um, not at all to say that it wasn't a team that could create chances with the ball, but uh, George, who's an Oxford fan, went to the game, I think at the Kassam uh, it would have been, and the first thing he said when he phoned me afterwards was, I haven't seen a team that dominant out of possession in terms of when Oxford had it, it felt like Shrewsbury were in control, even yeah. though they didn't have the ball because they were dictating where Oxford were passing at your Shrewsbury team. So we're going to talk more in depth about <laughs> what made that team so good later and you can tell me if, if that was a big part of it. But um, I want to talk about your playing career just for a little bit. What sort of player were you? Obviously, we know you're a left-back must have been very dependable because the amount of games that you played and, and in, at all levels as well, placing the team didn't seem like it was ever really under threat. But how would you describe yourself as a fullback? Well, there are a few things there that had, you know made me smile that when I can see why you perhaps would say it, but maybe weren't quite true. Um, I was always a left winger. Okay. So come Sunday League football, I'd scored a lot of goals in the youth team, played left back. Um, and I started out basically the first game of, of the season as a first year youth team player we had three left wingers one was a second year who ended up playing centre forward the other one was a first year but like one of my good friends and he was kind of the almost a golden boy at the time mm-hmm. so he was going to play left wing and the manager Billy Russell uh, said to me do you want to play left back or, or not and I said, if it means me being in the team, yeah. I'll play anywhere. Yeah. I'd rather be playing than sat on the bench. And so I played, and, and then the, I'd, I'd played, I think maybe one and a half games at left back prior to that. The second game of the season that I played in was a reserve game against Everton at Millmore, mm-hmm. as it was back then, playing against for the older listeners Pat Nevin. Oh wow! Paul Rideout, various other stars yeah. and played in that game and that was the start of me playing left back on a consistent basis you probably would have been in, in the modern game you probably would have been converted into a, a right winger cutting in and, and uh, shoot, inverted right winger but again I did play quite a few games in midfield for Rotherham uh, when we changed system and um, I can remember Ronnie Moore uh, at one stage we were having a, a good run uh, but I went to the training ground, walked up the steps, and he was in the sort of top room, uh, and I could hear him speaking on the phone, and I worked out he was speaking about me, but he was talking about me playing midfield, not really knowing what I'm doing, but running around a lot, <laughs> and <laughs> I took it as a compliment because I'd, I'd kept my place for a while, um, but no, I, I ended up actually playing every position, bar goalkeeper and out and out centre forward mm-hmm. at some point I played every other position on the pitch including centre half and getting the man of the match strangely um, which who were you up against who was this do you remember who you played I against I was I, it was more it wasn't someone for people who don't know I'm, I'm five foot five and a half at a push so I'm not your typical centre half but played against a lad called Rodney Jack who was very small quick mm. tricky um, so we more I more or less did a man marking job, but as a as a centre back, uh, and that was another role I was given by Ronnie Moore at times <laughs> to be a man marker, marking Chris Waddle uh, when he was playing manager at Burnley, and he he turned around and asked me if I was the hard man, uh, which <laughs> is clearly not the case. I just said <laughs> I'm just trying to do the job what managers asked me to do. So uh, 
what does it mean to you looking back at your playing career to have played let's just forget Burton half season loan for the moment to have played essentially a whole career for one club I imagine a source of pride but I, I wondered when I was thinking about it whether especially now that in management you're going to have lots of different situations and any experience can help whether you might wish that you could experience something else um not particularly in truth I think because you have experienced different managers um you know obviously I played for quite a few managers in in that time um but for, I was very fortunate when I, I think that's something when you're a manager now when you're looking to sign players and you realize that the family are having to relocate I, I never moved I never had to move so that's very fortunate on on that side I enjoyed a high percentage of my time at Rotherham so I never felt the need to move I think it was one occasion when the club and, and the other thing is we went through different things we you know I went through promotion mm. promotion uh, playoff heartache relegation so you've got an unbelievable relationship with the playoffs yeah and the club, club and administration as well though on the other side so I've experienced a lot of things through that, so I perhaps didn't have to move clubs yeah, to yeah. to under understand the the pitfalls of, of being in football. I suppose uh, double promotion from League Two to the Championship under Ronnie Moore, uh, just around just after the year two thousand and the next few years. Uh, what was so good about that team? How were you able to go back to back? Team spirit, genuinely. Um, I think. Perhaps like something we'll probably get on to speak about that you've alluded to. We had we were better than I think we were given credit for, mm-hmm. and better than we give ourselves credit for. Yeah. You know, I speak to you know the likes of Paul Warren at the minute, and we'll both say, "Oh, we ran around a lot. We we're hard to play against." You're probably a little bit better than that in truth. Being a bit modest, maybe, but we we certainly weren't the best team. I think the the first promotion from League Two. Um, was expected. We'd lost the previous year in the playoffs. I was one of the people that missed a penalty in the semi-final. Um, so that that was, wasn't was a massive surprise. But the next season, I don't think anyone expected us to, to run for promotion at all. And we were clearly got on a roll. It was very much uh, a similar team. And there were some games that we just... We won that we didn't deserve. I can remember one against Stockport. We won who were bottom of the league, really struggling. We somehow won that game. I think Port Vale was another one at home. And I know I scored at Port Vale just before Christmas. The reason I bring that up was not to say about me scoring a goal, but <laughs> I know at home my parents had said they'd had Sky on. And I, I think it might have been Paul Mason. So, but someone was watching it in the studio and said that it was one of the worst games of football they've ever seen. And they don't know how Rotherham have gone top of the league that oh, night. Yeah. And, I, you know, there were little things. We, we felt like we were the underdogs and up against it, um, challenging Reading and Wigan at the time for promotion. But it was a lot of it was built on team spirit. And that, yeah. but Ronnie was very good at that. We had days out where perhaps be difficult to, to have now yeah. with social media and people <laughs> cameras on the phone. Um, a couple of pub sessions. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I honestly think there's a time and a place for that now, mm. and uh, that's might surprise some people. But what do most people in society do? A lot of them, mm. groups and friends, they go for a drink together. Yeah, I'm not saying that you have to, you know, go silly. Probably like we did at times. It's not just friends either, but businesses, yeah, offices, 
there's a lot of office drinks and all that stuff. People drop the guard the a little bit, yeah. you know, so, and then you see a different side to people. And that 100% worked for us. Um, and then, we, you know, we managed to hang around in the championship for four seasons, which we were probably favourites to go down at the start of every season, I would have thought. It starts to make a bit more sense when you talk about the, the sort of mental strength of that team and the team spirit. Uh, it starts to make more sense when you look at the squad around that time. You've mentioned Paul Warren, uh, current Rotherham manager, of course. Uh, Mark Robbins was there, Coventry manager. David Artell, crew Alexandra manager. Uh, yourself and Rob Scott, who you started your management career as a joint manager with. Uh, Alan Nil, who has been a manager, is now part of the most successful management team in the EFL over the last five years with Chris Wilder yeah. and previously with him at, at Northampton as well. So you start to understand a bit what you mean when you say there were proper characters because these guys are all now leaders. Do you think they were formed by what Ronnie Moore did in those few years and yourself as well? Or do you think it was just a, all of those individuals would have ended up being managers? Uh, no, I don't think we were all... I think Ronnie said it, he went on record saying he didn't particularly see me becoming a manager. Warnie 100% wouldn't have been deemed that. But I mean, they, they were Nick Dawes, who had a, oh, yeah. uh, the spell at, at Scunthorpe. A couple of other lads, Martin McIntosh, Chris Swales, have, have managed in, in non-league. Um, it's a straight, I don't know, it's a strange thing. Um, you know, Ronnie had, had his way of doing it, and, and it clearly it worked for us. Um, but... You know, I, I don't mean this in any disrespect towards him, but I don't think it was anything particular. But maybe he picked. I, I was kind of there, but a lot of these players were brought into the club. Maybe there's something in someone's character. Mm. I think that's what he was very good at: is bringing players in that he, you know, got the best out of that individual. And, and like I said, we had to. We had to be that to to be able to compete uh, the way that we did. There's a lot of focus now, and. We epitomise this on our podcast. We talk a lot about um, data analytics at times and uh, and tactical stuff. Were in-depth tactics the same back then as they are now, or do you think the game's developed in terms of what you're expected to, to how you're expected to instruct your players as a manager? I think the game's clearly changed. There's far more analysis goes on because um... I think there'd be some people who'd say it's all nonsense. There's always been tactics. You know, oh, 100% there's been tactics I mean I, I kind of mentioned there that I was asked to do a man marking job on a few occasions for Ronnie and the very first time I did it was uh, against Rochdale a lad called Alex Russell that was pulling the strings for them away from home we went there, I supposedly did a good job and, and we won the game now that's not unheard of but it was quite unusual mm. um, playing against Darren Curry who was at oh, Barnet, yeah. and I, 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 he started out on the right wing, moved, and I followed him across, and then the other fullback had to go the other side, and again that worked. We, I ran off him, had a shot. Probably not Meg do once or twice. Wasn't very good. <laughs> well, it, it probably by my knees in a, a bad way now from all the <laughs> sort of fainting to cross that he does. But um, so, so that was something different that Ronnie did. Um, you know there, and we, look, he, he watched opposition, and we did shape. So it's not yeah. it's not totally different now, but I just think if anything at times there is overkill. Yeah. I think we can over analyse and everyone wants to know exactly why that didn't happen. Now mm. my biggest thing is yes, you want not to make mistakes, 
you want the team to set up, as I've said, to be organised and disciplined. But one thing that will never change is, while ever it's football and humans are playing, is mistakes will happen. Mm. And that the, the probably arguably the biggest one. I haven't heard a manager yet that's happy about conceding from a set play. <laughs> yeah, there's always goals, and it will happen. Yeah, and I'm guilty of it myself. Don't get me wrong. Mm. But sometimes it is just. You know, if someone this puts is a kind of like Norwich this season, for example, high percentage of their goals have been conceded from set plays. It's quite clear that a one reason for that is they don't concede many from open play, so the percentage will go up. Yeah. And b the the way that they play, the fact that they have so many talented ball players in that team, and they don't happen to be the biggest guys, it's obvious when they set up to defend a set piece against Barrow or Sheffield United just in terms of personnel they've got two centre-backs some teams have three yep. their third biggest player is maybe Lewis the left-back or maybe Vrancic midfielder but these aren't guys you'd expect to win that many aerial duels so but that's a trade-off that they play beautiful football in possession there's always going to be and I'm sure all Norwich fans will accept one or two <laughs> goals going in uh, the way that their season's gone but you, you make a good point there in terms of stats and we're all obsessed with stats. And I like looking at some some of the stats, but I think you've got to be very careful of how you interpret them. Mm. And I think some of the you know the TV channels, some of the stats are so lazy, and we want to make a big deal about someone who's had three games and his you know pass percentage is miles higher than the play that is replaced. Some of it is a nonsense. But you want to know how many forward passes he's making yeah and what, how, what matters yeah. you know it's like a bit like the possession starts people go oh they dominate possession if they've never had a shot mm. well what difference does that make I think and I've kind of been thinking as you were discussing team spirit and that Rotherham side one of the one of the reasons why that the coverage and analysis from the media I think can not always get the whole picture is there's no way for me for example to know the team spirit, the psychological side of, of teams. Now, you can see it in the flesh, the way that they play, but you're never going to fully uh, understand that you, and you can't really be definitive with what you can say. But, but nowadays, you know, with the amount of analysis you can find and some that you can do yourself, the amount of football you can watch, you can see patterns of play and you can understand what you're seeing on the pitch a little bit more. Maybe you just miss some of the mental side of the game the psychological side of the game which we can never I think truly understand so that's why I think they go bigger on the stats because that's yeah. what they they can see well like you said I think now anyone who's you know interested in football and watches it and is you know relatively um, intelligent would be able to say right you know we're going to set up 4-3-3 uh, three, 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 and would be able to sort of say, right, you run into this position when you've got the ball and the movements, as you say. But could that does that mean that they could be a football manager? And I would suggest on a high percentage of those, it, it would be no. But you, again, you, you point... How would you stand in front of 24 adults and get the message across yeah, in a way that they would buy into? It's like playing it on computers when people apply for jobs because they've won uh, championship manager, manager yeah. or whatever, yeah. So, but you, you made a good point again there that sort of when it comes to team selection, for example, and, and then the team's read out and then all of a sudden, you know, after a game, you questioned, why did you leave so-and-so out? Well, probably because you pick the team that you think's best for that day. And I, I always amazing when people question you as if you're going to pick a team that, 
you want to lose a game for you. <laughs> but also, you've seen them in training all week. They might be struggling with an injury that you don't really want to highlight to other people. You, you know, it might be he's had a something's gone wrong at home. Mm. You know, something terrible might have happened to a family member. You, you just don't know. So that that's the side that you know. And I, I find it difficult myself because I'm obviously really interested in football. I feel like I've got, you know, a, a decent knowledge of the game and things. And sometimes I look at games and think, why aren't they doing that? And then I have to remind myself and mm. think, well, you don't know. Yeah. Maybe they have made a decision that you wouldn't go along with, but maybe there's a genuine reason why they, they've taken, you know, such a such a decision. Paul Heckerbottom said the same thing about watching games. Uh, when you're in between jobs, and you're, you're constantly, as you've said, you're, you're looking at stuff, and you're you're almost trying to change things in your own head, and you realise you can't you can't do that. Well, even um, even when you are a manager, yeah. you know, like you stood on the side, I, I help out with my son's Sunday league team, the under 12s. I'm I'm assistant manager. <laughs> nice. And you, you you I listen to some at parents, and even going back to watching games, sometimes if you in a stand and you're just in with, you know, the the normal fans, and I mean that. We've all, you know, you're not yeah, putting yeah. a special area just with, you know, the managers or something. Some of the things that you hear said about, I don't know, maybe marking your wing at Usopin when I was playing, stand on the touchline next to them and the ball's on the other side of the pitch because that's your man. You know, it, it's ridiculous and that's <laughs> not what you want to do. But you, you, as a manager and when you sat watching a game, you never give a pass away. Yeah. You make all the right decisions. Best player of all time. But the difference is you step over that white line and you start to run around and you get a bit tired or you're not having the best of days and you're under a bit of pressure, fans are on it, yeah. As going back to it, you make mistakes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um I wanna talk about how you got into management. You said that Ronnie Moore has said pub- publicly he didn't expect you to be a manager, he didn't expect Paul Warren to be a manager. Um a lot of people, because Paul has his has his own <laughs> style in press conferences, doesn't he? And yeah. some of the some of the comments he's made, especially when he was first manager, talking about how surprised he, he was. Said he didn't want manager. to be a manager. Yeah. So everyone knows about that with with Paul Warren. When you hear Ronnie Moore say, oh, "I'm surprised Paul Hurst uh, is a football manager," what was your reaction? You're like, "Well, was that annoying? Was that surprising? Was that no, not not is that fair enough? Fair enough." Um... Me as a as a footballer, obviously, I, I enjoyed playing. I enjoyed training. All of that. I, that's what I wanted to be. But I was very interested in in the tactical side from a, from a young age. Then I probably did get a spell in in the middle of my career where I didn't really feel I was learning much more, or and I kind of lost a bit of interest. And then towards the end, I was thinking more about. You know what could I do after football, but not thinking that a career in manager. I think it's really difficult now. You know, hats off to people that say I, I want to be a manager, mm. and they go and get the coaching badges and things like that. But how many people want to do that, and how many opportunities are there? So I think it's really difficult to say that is one hundred percent what I'm going to do. Mm. And I ended up stumbling into it through. I made a decision to go part-time with Ilkeston rather than sign at Mansfield Town, who had been relegated to the conference. It was just as a player? Yes. Okay. Um, and then myself and Rob Scott, as you said, we started out with, were playing at Ilkeston. David Oldsworth was manager. He then 
strangely got the Mansfield job <laughs> and me and Rob were placed in, in temporary charge. It went well. We were um, then put in charge till the end of the season and won promotion and kind of that's how my, my story started. Why was it both of you put in temporary charge? Obviously, you would have been very experienced at that point, probably more so than the rest of the squad, but were you guys clearly a duo even before you were appointed? No, I, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, I think at the time, to be fair, when I, I decided I was going to sign for Ilkeston um, and Rob was a bit undecided, I think once I'd signed, he kind of went was more likely to have followed and, and did um, but then I think we it was just a case of we were the most experienced yeah. and I think we both you know are decent professionals um, you can get obviously some experience as a different characters um, just felt that we would be you know good to take it in the in the short term and that's what we did and I still very much wanted to play and did mm-hmm. uh, Rob was Kind of happy to he'd had enough of playing he was doing doing it but he, I don't think he was particularly enjoying it so he was happy to be you know the one that stepped on the side and, and managed from the side but it was you know still very much for me I wanted to play mm. I was very conscious of the fact that it was caretaker roles yeah. and that yes while you've got to give some instruction out in two weeks' time, they could be very much just your teammates again, yeah, and yeah. you know to careful. be careful yeah, of yeah. how how we went about. So, when did you get appointed full time? Because promoted uh, playoff final with Ilkeston. What happened was at the end of the season, there was some rumours flying around. We were thinking, well, we've got promoted. Surely we're going to get a contract, and we were still players, mm. but nothing was actually happening and right. being said. And as it happened, unfortunately, Ilkeston ran into trouble and ended up dropping down the leagues in the meantime Rob um, spoke to Boston and then we got the Boston job so we, we were only actually so you were never permanent manager no we no. were half a season yeah. and, and I don't know if it ever was so you're not taking too much credit for that well a little bit we were se- in fairness we were seventh I think when we took over and we ran Eastwood who won it until the last day of the season but went up through the playoffs as you said then went to Boston, but had to drop back down to the league we just got promoted yeah. from, um, and then got promoted again through through the playoffs. I noticed, I dug around, found a, a report from the final, Ilkeston against Eastwood, playoff final, your first promotion as a as a manager, and uh, Ben Pringle is in the side. Yeah. So he, was, he must have been a young, was he a star man for you guys? Because this is a guy we now recognise as someone who's had a career in the EFL, and there he was with you. In he, your first steps in management, he did well, Ben. But I, I was amazed when Derby came in for him, um, and like I said, that's not not putting Ben down at all. He had a lot of energy, a good left foot, um, but I I think he was part of what was just a, a pretty good team, you know, with maybe a few experienced lads and a couple of lads, younger ones that I'd used sort of contacts with. Got a couple of lads in from Rotherham mm. who did very well for us. Um, but no, I was pleased for him, but surprised that he, he made such a big step from, from playing for Ilkeston. And then promotion in the first season with Boston United as well. Around this time, you and Rob getting more of a, a feel for, for management, I presume. How was the relationship? How did it sort of develop in that first season? You work out who's doing what? How was it balanced? Yeah, a lot of people, and I, I understand why, would ask that. Um, we didn't fall out. 
we picking the team that you select, you know, picks it, is it you one week and then Rob the next? That's yeah. not how it how it would work. Um, very rarely would we have much of a difference, um, and we'd talk it through and then eventually, you know, come up with a, with a team. But I, again, I was still wanting to play, but Ilkeston <laughs> held me registration and wanted the almighty fee of eight thousand pound for me to be able to play. Must have been worth that. I couldn't take that out of our budget, <laughs> so I had to. I did all pre-season thinking they'd uh, just write it off, uh, so I was fit, or fit as I could be at that time. Um, but then couldn't play, so that was my first experience of you know standing on the touchline yeah. uh, with Rob. And again, it, it it just went really well. We we had a, a really good group of players again that were I think you know keen to impress and progress. And um, like I said, we managed to win promotion again through via the playoffs. Yeah, the the next move was to Grimsby, and again uh, you and Rob went there together. Danny Cowley and, and his brother Nicky, the Lincoln management team, they started, you know, although I think it's a bit more of a Danny as manager, Nicky as assistant, Danny's always been very clear that it's very, very, you know, they're very yeah. close with their decision making. Yeah. They started with Concord Rangers and then went on to Braintree. And then it was the move to Lincoln that was a first full time job for them. So when we're talking about you and Rob with Ilkeston and Boston, still a part time job yeah. for you that isn't it so you must have felt like you'd earned a full time job with Grimsby that must have been a, a massive move for you yeah it was you know we left Boston um, in the March and we were in the playoffs in the conference north to, to try and get promotion to uh, to the conference and I'd had a really good relationship with the people at Boston um, but at the time I was also working uh, back at Rotherham United mm-hmm. I was the participation officer, okay. so that you know, two days a week you'd work, and then get in the car, drive over to Boston, train, and then you you got your Saturday. Mm. It took up a lot of time. You know, it was hard work, and not that I didn't enjoy it, um, but the chance to go full time was yeah. was too good to turn down, and especially going to a club like Grimsby that had, was a big club in in the conference. Um, you know, we we didn't feel that we could turn down that opportunity, so went there and spent quite a few years there. Uh, yeah, well, how do you look back at your time with Grimsby? Because as followers of the EFL, Grimsby, you came up. They are still an established League Two team. A few years later, but reaching League Two, not easy from the looks of things. You were up there every year. Yeah, was it four years in a row you made the playoffs? Yes. I mean, that must have been a bit of a roller coaster. So you lose in the playoffs three years in a row. It, I think my, my old time at Grimsby was, um, as you said, we, we were always, or most seasons, fighting for promotion. The first, we had 10 games of one season, which was basically a, a getting to know the club and the players, and ultimately we tried clearing as many of those out, felt we needed a fresh start. As first full season, up until probably I think maybe March time we were still in with a shout at the playoffs then tailed off finished 11th after that it was playoffs every year yeah. um, and then obviously the change with, with Rob leaving and me becoming sole manager um, but things were always in the grand scheme of it things were always going well but the arte that we had at the end of yeah, three yeah. seasons 
Um, you said yourself when you talked so. about the Rotherham team that you played for, you were expected to win League Two or be up there because the previous season you'd lost in the playoffs. And that is normally the assumption, isn't it, that a playoff team that loses in the semi-finals or the final be there or thereabouts next year. So you've you've got to deal with those expectations yeah. with Grimsby. And I mean the 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 fact that there's only two promotion spots one for the champions and then one for the playoffs it just makes it even harder that's what I was just going to say the difference between getting promoted with Rotherham I think we finished second I think I'd be right in saying Swansea won it um, but three went up and then one through the playoffs in the conference as we know one go up and one through the playoffs as big as the club Grimsby were and although we were challenging you know in those years we honestly didn't have the biggest budget to say right go on you know we Fleetwood went up one year there was no comparison um, I think the one maybe that did well that wasn't as um, you know clearer in terms of having a massive budget were Barnet mm-hmm. but other than that there were always teams with more money but we had the history we had the fan base We and again we had a, a very competitive budget to challenge but it wasn't anything close to being able to guarantee a promotion. Yeah. Um, you're trying to manage expectations, but you know, as a manager, you want to be involved with a club like that. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be oh, mid tables, all right. Um, but you saw fine margins. The first in each year, I could tell you a small snippet of a story. So the first year we play Newport at home, it's nil nil, going f- about five minutes left. We go at one end, miss, I think, I don't know, maybe even at the bar, but miss a chance. They get a free kick at the other end. The lad heads it, it's going massively wide. It hits our defender on the side of the cheek and goes in the bottom corner. The second leg, we missed a couple of chances. After that, we weren't good enough. So no massive complaints, but a little bit of misfortune. Mm. The second one, Gates head, draw 1-1, go up there. Go 1-0 down, my keeper, probably the best keeper in the conference, lets a shot slip through his hand straight at him that we would save probably 98 times, 99 times McEwen, out of 100. Yes, yeah. one of the best goalkeepers in League 2 now. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I still speak to him and he'll probably listen to this and say, what do you say that for? <laughs> um, we then went down to 10 men. We equalise. We're playing really well. We then have another man sent off. And the first send, the second sending off, no issues whatsoever. The second, uh, the first one, sorry, was shouldn't, never no contact. It was, you know, although it wasn't that many years ago, it wasn't like now where oh I can see why it's a red. I couldn't believe it. So you bad luck. We then Bristol Rovers in the, we got to the final this time. One nil up early on. The next minute, their keeper makes a challenge. Should be sent off. Daryl, who I know you've spoken to, will hopefully admit it. Their their subkeeper was getting stripped, ready to go on. The referee books him. We end up going to penalties. We lose on penalties. And you you know there is part of you starting to think, is it not meant to be? Mm. But or uh, being people tell me I'm stubborn. I don't think I am. But uh, and competitive, you think no. We'll do it next season, and, and thankfully we did. The season you won the playoffs, just looking here, you actually won fewer games that year than you did the year before um, when you lost in the final, uh, yeah. and and as well fewer games that you won just in the league in twelve thirteen as well. So again, it's amazing how 
the narrative changes, and that's the nature of I the playoffs, the, isn't the it? The team that lost against um, Bristol Rovers on penalties and that group, I think probably deserved it that little bit more. Mm. But I think having Barnet won the league with John Akinde, who was outstanding, uh, and Bristol Rovers, the competition was yeah, yeah. probably a little bit greater. The season you went up. Podjarman scored 30 goals in the league. Well, we had him and Omar Bogle, so Pete, I know there'll be people, maybe listening, Grimsby fans in particular, questioning what I've just said, but that was my... I thought it was the best group of people that we had, mm. um, albeit, you know, not much between them. Um, but no, I, I mean, to finally get that victory, and you're obviously getting questioned, and you mentioned about the difficulty of it, the, the losing playoff finalists, I think their average position the year after was something like 7th or 8th. Mm. A journalist had mentioned that and they didn't have us in finishing in the playoffs. That was pinned up straight away, users' motivation, <laughs> and in the end we managed to, to prove him wrong, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and uh, what was I going to say? Do you think there should be three up from the National League, three down from League 2, therefore, and possibly change it so there's three down from League 1 and three up from League 2? Just make it a bit more balanced. It, I un, I kind of understand how it was originally set up. It feels like now the top teams in the National League deserve to be in, in League Two as much as the bottom teams in League Two deserve to be relegated. And sometimes you get a great team from the National League who don't go up, and a poor team in League Two who manages to stay up just because they happen to be in a league where there's only two spots. Do you think it should be evened out? I've spoke about this before we I've certainly discussed it with friends and colleagues that I don't I look at it and I don't understand how things you know why the four go down League 1 relegation League battle one. at the moment is well, terrifying I went from trying to get out of a league with Grimsby yeah. where it, it was so difficult as we just spoke about and then eventually when I left went to a League 1 club that was bottom of the league and four went down <laughs> and I'm thinking this, this doesn't seem right I've still done something wrong in a, in a former life but it, it does seem odd that there's a discrepancy in different mm. numbers I think for me and maybe it's easy for me to say I'm, I'm not an owner of a football club in League 2 but I know there's been a lot of chairmen they vote for it one way when they're in the conference they get into League 2 and naturally they vote the other way I think for me, there's. I think someone told me the other day there's something like between eight and twelve teams that are full time in the Conference North now. Yeah, terrifying. They're good setup, so yeah, yeah. surely we should have it where you know teams can get promoted. Uh, I think it should be three teams. Yeah. You left Grimsby uh, in League Two um, to join Shrewsbury in League One and you'd been there for six years lots of uh, good seasons but playoff heartache yeah. and then getting the team into the EFL just from an outside perspective looking in it it felt at the time where you left Grimsby having brought them up into League Two like the relationship was still a bit difficult with the fans maybe I don't know whether they uh, um, have very high expectations I know that they've not always had the best a relationship with the board that's been there for a while but is that something that you found difficult at Grimsby or does that sort of come with the territory of being a manager given what's happened since and they seem to be settled now with Michael Jolly but for a while after you left things were very fractious and it, and it might have felt like in hindsight many of the fans might have realised what they had in Paul Hurst that they might not have realised uh, at the time Possibly I mean I think we 
we won at Wembley, and I, one of the I think the first thing I said when interviewed was about that there'll be some people celebrating tonight that I don't think should be, because they basically questioned the players, they questioned myself, and and slagged us off. And but what I would say, and this is the thing, is it's often a minority that we talk about, but because they voice an opinion, yeah. yeah. And I I really did enjoy my time at Grimsby. There's a lot of good people there. There's a lot of good fans there. And I, you know, some of those wrote to me when I was at Shrewsbury and even when I went to Ipswich. And you know, th- this is a difficulty because you, you're almost tarring everyone with the same brush, and and it's clearly that's not the case. But we we were questioned. Um, there were a couple of games in the season, in particular, that I wasn't happy about some of the things that had happened. Um, but in in truth, it was more. Having spent so long to get up, it was a strange move on looking in. I must. What's I could, that? Your move to me? Yeah, because we were one place outside the playoffs. I'd been in the playoffs the week before my last game. Bogle banging them in. And, and doing well. Yeah. And then I joined a team that's bottom of League One, 10 points from 15 games, and everyone saying they're not very good and they pretty much nailed on to get relegated. So it didn't really make a lot of sense on that side. The reason I left, and I've said this before, um, when we were in the conference, I felt like there was, rightly or wrongly, some truth in the fact that we we perhaps couldn't you know have certain things or increase uh, the staff or things like that, resources available to us. And the excuse was about being in the conference. When we got promoted... I didn't feel like anything changed. I think we got we, there was one extra like porter cabin came up and the budget went up slightly, but not nothing dramatically. Yeah. I didn't feel like we were the club was willing to progress, and I know it took a little while. I think Marcus Bignett had similar mm. issues mm-hmm. from speaking to him, and then eventually Russell Slade went in and I think got to the point. Not saying it all perfect but has got a lot of the things that I would have liked. And it, and it's it's quite sad because often these things happen when things aren't going as well as what, you know, instead of trying to build when you are being mm. successful mm. and things are going well, yeah. we are, it's like the thing of, oh, what do you want that for? You, you're doing well anyway. But we want to get better. Yeah. And the whole thing was trying to improve the football club. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was really the, the reason for leaving rather than anything with the fans Mm. Um, because again I think a lot of them like I said I, I did get on with and I have to say the particularly the away following were absolutely outstanding yeah a couple of fan blogs and Twitter accounts that we follow and they've got a fantastic wicked sense of humour some of the Grimsby fans and, yeah and I mean, I, I, it's, yeah. it's such a massive part of the, of the town you know and I know that will be said in a lot of places but it's clearly an area of the country that has struggled in terms of employment. You know, its its biggest industry has taken a hit. It's not a wealthy area in general. And I think you can tell that in terms of how much the club means by every time there was a new kit available, there'd be queues, you know, around all the housing mm. and the amount of people that you would see in a Grimsby Town football shirt. It, it means so much to them. So, you know, I, I would never be critical of, of 
that it was like I said one or two people and it goes back to my thing of people always want you to be honest but when you are honest sometimes they don't like it and I think just with like I said a minority that 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 was the case so you do take the Shrewsbury job for for some people they might not understand it given the the league positions at the same time following the EFL pretty closely and following managers careers I'm at the point now as a as a fan as someone looking at it who always understands when someone takes a job in the higher league the the um, job duration expectancy of a manager as you will know is is very very short and things can (laughs) change very very quickly so to me, it makes complete sense. Your priority is yourself and your career. If your stock is high enough to get a job in, in the league above, to, to take that. It's one of those imprecise things where you can always look at examples where someone's gone up and maybe success hasn't come and you say, oh, maybe you should have stayed. But surely you can't really think like that because then you'd be capping yourself or sort of... Yeah, I mean... Obviously, a lot of the time people will look at when players move, when managers move, and look straight away at finances. Now, I was, it was a bit better deal, but it wasn't a financially motivated deal whatsoever. You know, and on art, I can say that part of the reason for moving was, I, I, as I said, I didn't feel like we were progressing how I would have liked, and moving to to Shrewsbury. I knew that there were more resources there, as in, like a, an analyst. There was a bigger scouting team, and I wanted to experience working yeah. with that. And now, you know, it was a new experience for me. How does that work on a daily basis? You know, and in the end, it turned out fantastic, and it showed me another side to to how I think you can help have success at a football club. But I think overall, I get what you're saying about moving up a division. But after speaking um, with the people at Shrewsbury, they might they might still say otherwise. But I I got the feeling I was being brought in to try and do what I could for that season. Mm-hmm. And I know there's still like two thirds of it left. But in general, to build a team ready to get promoted or to fight for promotion back to League One if we did get relegated. Some people might see that as a lack of ambition from their point, given that it was only October. But I would suggest at least they're not putting their head in the sand. You know, they're, they're planning I ahead a bit. the people um, at Shrewsbury are very realistic in, in what they think um, can be achieved and are understanding of where they sit in general um, compared to... We spoke about it before, realistic and football don't go hand in hand. I think that they're a very good example of um, a club that are certainly more in in the realms of, of reality. I want to talk about the Shrewsbury side from last season that you took to Wembley for the playoff final and lost to your great friend Paul Warns Rotherham. You mentioned that Shrewsbury hired you and, and you reckon that they had one eye on a season in League Two in 2017-18, but you managed to stay up, which is a fantastic achievement in itself. But last season, a season that that you couldn't have, have possibly expected from the outside looking in, and dare I say it, for many within the club as well. What I wanted to ask you about last season was, at what point, maybe in the summer or maybe not till the season started, did you think, I tell you what, we're a good team. We we could do a lot more than people think here. Yeah. 
just before I go on to that, my assistant again, Chris, he thinks keeping that the, the team up the first year is arguably as as our biggest achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure. Uh, it was good. I, I don't know. But going on to your question there about that team and when did we realise? We had a fantastic pre-season. Um, we beat four championship clubs. But at the end of the day, it's pre-season. And as a player, and I'm sure fans have seen the, you know, the real avid fans that either go to the games or certainly look at the results, will have seen a team think, you know, full of optimism because they've had great results against higher-ranked teams, yeah. and it gets to the start of the season, uh, and they're rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> and vice versa. Right. I had that as a player. We went to Millwall first game of the season, and I don't know if we won by six, and we we've, we've been absolutely bang average pre-season. <laughs> so. So you're not sure how much... You're never quite sure. I liked some things we were doing. Um, We looked really fit, which you you should be at that stage, but I think we were. I think we we sort of got a run on teams initially because I think we were in a better place than some were. Um, But there were a couple of games. One was Oxford away, which you, you spoke about. Yeah. Oxford were really fancied to do well that season and I looked at their team and thought they got some good players. We went there and we drew one all. We had a goal that should have been given if VAR was in <laughs> place. Um, obviously it wasn't and that would have won us a game. Yeah. Um, so that would have made it 2-1. But really, we're the better team and played really, really well. And you just thought, hmm. But that was still really early. We then played... Blackburn at home and we drew again one all. I think they, they equalised late on mm. came on strong towards the end of the game but for large parts of it we'd done really well probably edged it and in the dressing room after the game I can remember saying to the players that you know we probably played against what is going to be one of the best teams in the mm. league and as it turned out um, if you can keep these standards up We've certainly got nothing to fear because, again, we were second favourites for relegation. Yeah. Something that, well documented, I, again, I pinned up on the board and we used as motivation. Can't remember what we predicted. <laughs> I'm worried. <laughs> well, it wouldn't surprise me because that's, you know, having just stayed up and, you know, not being one of the biggest clubs, um, one of the, certainly not having one of the biggest budgets, That that's normal. And, I, you know, I didn't go into the season thinking we were going to be anywhere near what we ended up being. Mm. Um but I thought we'd certainly be okay, and you just hope that you could, you know, keep that bit of momentum going, and and we managed to, and it, you know, we ran Wigan and Blackburn close, probably, you know, stayed on the court tails or made them catch us for a lot longer than they they expected us to. You had a couple of aspects to to the game which are reflected in the stats um, and we know that you can look into these however you want but some very positive ones that I'm sure you won't complain about okay. uh, in 40 in the 46 games in the regular season you only conceded 12 goals in the first half of games um, which is the best obviously in the division I mean that's a ridiculous record I didn't know that one so you, you. You, you, you know <laughs> I'll add that to my CV and it strikes me we, we've spoken about how in the past about how teams punch above their weight in terms of budget and how teams can be better than the sum of their parts in terms of when you just look at a squad on paper you think how many of these players at this level have been right at the top and for some clubs 
you recognise names and for whatever reason they don't work so well as a team. And in the opposite case, you can not see anything stand out necessarily, but these guys take a step up to the next level. Bit of a perfect storm for you guys. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, I don't think that at League One, League Two level, especially the analysis of the mainstream media ever focuses on tactics, systems, that sort of thing. So I'd love it, if you don't mind, to talk us through the general ideas that you had when you set up that team and, and what you thought was important with the personnel that you had because George saw you guys play and he was so impressed with the shape, the system, and he said that that's what will take them. Yeah. You know, they're, they're better than the sum of their parts. So what was the thinking there? Well, that Oxford game was the actually Ben Godfrey's debut. Mm. Uh, I'd been wanting to get him in. It helped that the chairman was wanted a sort of tough tackling midfield player um, that was around about six foot tall, and I sold it. And Ben was kind of uh, an extra to what we were supposed to have. Yeah, uh, and that's you know, like I said, credit to the chairman for for doing that deal, and that worked for us and that was kind of the final piece really of really how we wanted to set up which was did you know that he was going to be as good as he was because for a loney like that hadn't played much adult football sometimes I guess it's hard to truly tell but maybe with him you could just sense something a bit special I mean he's looking pretty good at centre back at the top of the championship well that's what I was just going to say I, I always wanted him as a central midfield player at Norwich he'd played quite a bit at centre back he played right back I'd, you know, we'd set his art on him as a, as a sort of midfielder just in front of the back four. Um, I couldn't have, have sat there. I said I think he would be really good for us. But to, to have, to do as well as what he did on his first loan, and I, I think, I'm sure you spoke to managers and get this, the first loan's so difficult. Never work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I've had a few that have, and other managers will have, don't get me wrong. But, it's sometimes having that you know a bit of faith and I, and that's something I think I'm prepared to do as a manager is give people opportunities maybe my latest job people have said I, I did that too much with some um, but Ben came in was brilliant as set up really was people, it used to make me laugh again press would say well, yeah, what formation are you playing is it this and they'd tell me what it was i say oh, is it? <laughs> it some people well, say a player like Nolan who could play in front of a Midfield or behind a midfield, yeah. and is in the same game. And in fairness, he, he, some people saw it as a four-one-four-one. Some people saw it as a sort of four-three-three. Three. The, the times, or I think we once played three at the back, which was kind of a one-off. Um, but and we might have changed say, to a four-four-two late in a game or something. But the consistent formation was to have three midfield players. Mm-hmm. The three midfield players was where sometimes a variation took place, whether it was one with two in front or whether it was more two holding and someone playing what everyone wants to talk about as being this number 10. Um, and you're right, John could play in either sort of role. More often than not, if we were sort of a two and a one, he'd be that one classed almost as a, as a number 10, I suppose. Yeah, hard-working wide players, full-backs who did a bit of both. Yeah. Junior Brown, I know, picked up a, an injury and then Omar Beckles had to fill in. So you have to make some changes, I suppose, to the way that you ask your team to attack. If you have Junior Brown, who's a natural left-sider, 
uh, who can cross with his left foot comfortably and someone like Beckles who might be playing to his eyes maybe a bit out of position right footed maybe a bit less inclined to, to bomb forward but you had on the other side good attacking right backs didn't you so again it, it, it just seemed like it had a good balance to it you, you've got to everyone you have to put a squad together and you know that's the difficulty as a manager you've got you hope that you end up with a group of players that can all go in when when they're called upon and not make you that much weaker. But naturally that's difficult because if you've got absolutely sort of 20, 22 players that should be playing in League One, there's going to be a little bit of unhappiness there. Because mm. in general, we were rel- the team for large parts, it was pretty settled. I think that was something that was good for us. We played, ended up playing more games than anyone in country, I think, because of his yeah, cup yeah. exploits. I know some people maybe questioned, did we just tire right at the end? That's what I was going to ask next. I wasn't convinced of that personally. No. Well, it was a playoff final decided by set pieces, a checker trade trophy final decided by set pieces. A red hot day for the the uh, the playoff final, and against a team in Warney uh, and Rotherham that I said I felt was the most like us in some respects. Mm. I think they was one of the few teams that you could argue would be on a very similar sort of level of fitness to yeah. us. Um, so I, I'm not sure whether that was the case, but one thing we prided ourselves in was how fit we were and so many other teams commented on how fit, hard-working, which I've said before, speaking to people, they're not the... Uh, the sexiest of words that people want to hear mm-hmm. but if they help you win games and it's brilliant when you then get Guardiola on a Monday night football talking about one of his players not running enough yeah. so he won't play and then you just say there you go it's not just us it's not just players that aren't you know, technically Premier League that we're asking this to do it's everyone wants to do it if you want to be the best and that's what we had we had a group that really bought into that and you know I love working with them the time around the playoff final and the final itself um, as with the nature of the playoffs a bit of a sort of sliding doors type thing and something that it feels like almost every season you've had as a manager has ended in playoff triumph or heartbreak it's a a crazy record you've got Um, what do you think of of the game against Rotherham Uh, it was obviously tight Two goals from the from the centre back Richard Wood. You mentioned earlier, no manager's ever been happy to concede from a set piece. No, but is that the most frustrating thing that could happen? No. The reason being, I think Rotherham had scored lots of goals. They were a massive threat. They were a big side. It was something we were conscious of, but. You know, we we had difficulties first half. We with the pen, the early penalty that he saved, uh, Dean, um, and we knew that that was going to be a big part. And people tired, and we scored with a set play, albeit a different type. I got to ask about this. When I was looking back at Rotherham team from the early two thousands, and I talked about it earlier, some of the personnel, Alan Mill was in that team and I think he managed you as well at Rotherham when yes, you were a player did, yeah. there's, a, there's a fantastic analyst who focuses on the EFL called Ollie Walker and he has spotted a, a certain trend of Alan Nil and Chris Wilder teams scoring from a set piece set up very similar 
to the one that you scored. Yeah, so scored at Northampton, a, they did it. Scored, at Sheffield United, they yeah, did it against Scunthorpe. So, would you say thanks to Alan Neil for that routine? Yeah, because it was brilliantly executed. We'd worked at it all season. Well, at various points. And How many you, times did you try it in a game? I think only about three times. Now, sometimes that's where the ball's set up. And because of where we did score, if we didn't always have kind of the left footer in place to, to play the reverse ball, but that was the side of the pitch, we had something different for the other side. Mm. Um, so you, it's not always on to do every game, but I did think there were a couple of occasions during the season that maybe players either forgot... <laughs> Or they maybe bottled out of doing it. But you don't want to use it too much either. No, do you? of course Because the opposition analysts will pick up on it. Um, but I, you know, I'll happily um, hold my hand up and say I'm. I watch a lot of football, and you know, I did it at my last club. If we see clever set plays from teams, don't tell me. You know, like. Um, Podrick, come on, let's say. Yeah. We, I was about I, to say, you want to watch so the scores a, They are the clever set-piece takers, I Well, think. they scored another one, didn't they, the game after him? But over the last 18 months yeah. as well, they do it every... Uh, we have a joke on the podcast when we talk on a Monday, looking back at the weekend. Newport win a tight game by one goal from yeah. a set-piece. It happens more than most. Yeah, oh, I dare say it might, but what I would say is I would be very, very surprised if they... Are absolute original ideas, and that—that's all. And that's what I mean. I, so I'm—I'm. I'm, I like. I get. I'd get the analyst to get goals from. You know, if we see anything, and look at what I think would suit the sort of players we've got. Now, if you like, said if you're a Rotherham side, and they had a lot of variations on the corners, which was something else which made it difficult for them to mark. But even that said. If they just throw it in the box, it's still going to be a massive threat because of the people they had attacking it. And with us, that's something said we did work at. I think once it, it kind of led to a shot, and then the other times either it didn't work or we didn't do it. Um, but it was a, a great goal to score on on such a big occasion. Yeah. It'd be interesting to to perhaps speak to Alan about that and see, you know, where he got it from, yeah. or did, you know, at some point obviously there is an original idea. Yeah, well, well they've scored a lot as well this season. That they are blessed with the delivery of Norwood and Fleck and players like that, just fantastic. But this, I've got quite a few on on my laptop yeah. of, and it turns out that the Sheffield United goals. They scored a great one at Bradford City, Billy Sharp, with an early free kick that we we tried and we we almost scored. Um, and for all the the play that goes on in 90 minutes or 90 what plus injury time can be great spectacles how many games as you've just uh, alluded to there a won on a set play or lost so I think it's something that you know I don't do it as much as maybe as in repetition so it's boring the players to death but I think certainly you should have things up obviously uh, I just want to touch on the end of your time at Shrewsbury uh, the time around the playoff final um I'm not entirely sure what's been cleared up and what hasn't yet. So let's try and just do that because there's definitely a lot of different versions of events uh, and uh, a lot of people who not so happy about what happened, people who don't have a problem with what happened. So what happened surrounding the playoff final? There's, I've read a suggestion that 
your desk was cleared before the game because you knew you were going to leave and therefore that, you know that affected the the performance yeah, of the team. I mean look there, there was obviously rumors flying around um there had been at different times of the season um but if anyone thinks that I didn't want to win promotion whether it was against my mate whether it was against my former team and to to not have that on your CV and all that work that you put into a season with that group of players um and when people are in tears, then you know that's ridiculous, really, mm. to think anything other than that. Um, I w- there were a couple of things with, with Shrewsbury. One, like I said, it was such a, a really an unfancied team trying to go against the odds to, to win promotion. Secondly, we got to Wembley and lost in the um, checker trade, as you said, against Lincoln, and the club had hasn't won at Wembley. I talked about getting to Wembley. We did that twice, but then I wanted to be the manager that was in charge when the club finally won. And so to fail was, you know, hard to take. Um, but it, you did know that you'd be taking the Ipswich job in the coming days or weeks. Or no, the the approach came the day after. Okay. But I'd already changed my holiday once. <laughs> I think that was a story that was going on at the time. I'd said to my wife, don't be silly, we're not getting the playoffs. And that wasn't meaning getting automatic either. I was like, no, no. And we changed, I think we changed it once and then had to change it again. So we would went on holiday the following day and that's when they'd come in and I had to speak to um, the, the chairman of, of Shrewsbury in the airport and... That was one of the worst conversations that I've had with him in terms of I wanted to, um, you know, speak with Ipswich. Still raw from the game and the whole situation. Um, yeah, that's not a good memory. Mm. Uh, that, that if I you have. delay that conversation and word comes out that you've been approached by Ipswich and Shrewsbury here from another source, then. That causes a I bigger issue, maybe. Whether we like it or not, it, it was never going to be a good time when you're in a playoff final because you, you're running deep into people already getting on with the work, they're signing players, and you know it, it was unfortunate. Had, had we won promotion um, with the automatic, would things have happened sooner? Would it have happened at all? Who knows? But. It, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't a nice time in yeah. a lot of ways, and a, a pretty busy summer as well. Taking over Ipswich, um, you, you've spoken a, a decent amount. You've been asked a lot of questions about your time at Ipswich by various media outlets. It, instead of getting you to talk about what went wrong, which you can find you talking about on Sheffield Live or on EFL Matters when you were on at Sky Sports. I, I wanted to just focus, well, we've only got a short time left on um, the period of recruitment over the summer of buying and selling of players. It's something we talk about a lot on the podcast. And Ipswich in the summer, under your tutelage, uh, were one of the most interesting teams to follow in the sense that it was obvious there was going to be a, a change of system and change of just a change after Mick McCarthy, yeah. who had had such a left such a mark on the club in his time there, and the departure of Waghorn, Webster, Garner, McGoldrick. That's the man who is now arguably the best centre back in the division in Webster, 
and three great goal scorers. Yes. So it was interesting the way that the club went about recruitment, and I just wondered if you could run me through the the conversations that you had and how the structure works because it's sometimes hard to tell from the outside looking in whether the recruitment process is the manager's remit a head of recruitment's remit a collaboration of the two yeah and when you look at the signings that were made it was like a league one all-stars of sorts players that we said these guys deserve a chance in the championship and the signings make sense yeah. hungry for a chance Caden Jackson Ellis Harrison Guion Edwards Donatian, John Nolan, and Ciala. So what was the thinking behind going after those sorts of players? I think, as you said, we're looking at trying to kind of build something and, and a different direction, um, trying to go away from the sort of, for want of a better word, the, the first one that came into mind, a journeyman, that are just picking up a bit of money, carrying on. Um, and given financially what was available felt that that was the best best route to take uh, it worked well obviously at, at Shrewsbury and I've, as I've said before like even going back to someone like Omar Bogle lots of people had looked at him no one actually gave him that opportunity and when we did it worked out brilliantly for, for all parties you know Omar myself and, and Grimsby um, so we went down that, that route um, in terms of the players you just spoke about um, that left, McGoldrick was never on any list or anything that I had. He wasn't even on a budget sheet, which made me laugh considering that he'd been the highest paid player at the football club. It was as though you wouldn't know that. Mm. So that one always brought a, a smile to my face. Um, Adam Webster left after about three or four days, I think it was, Um and made it clear he wanted to leave. And then the same happened with Martin Waggon and and Joe, albeit they dragged on through pre-season. Joe had personal circumstances that meant he wanted to leave, and if he'd have stayed at the football club, there's no doubt he, we wouldn't have got the best Joe Garner. And with Martin, when a team comes in, and financially they're going to be so much better off, and was a great lad, by the way, and still is. But he found the whole situation difficult, and it was rumbling on and on. There was no doubt, again, we wouldn't have had the best Martin Waggon. And when a player's head's turned and they're not there, it's difficult. Mm. And I think, you know, we in the end, we were sold. The, the, the biggest disappointment for me was the centre-back because I was told that he could have the money to, to go and replace um, him. But it took too long. We entered the season with Luke Chambers as the one recognised centre-back in the squad. First game of the season, ended up having to play Danassian at centre-back to start with. And then Jordan Spence got injured, he moved across and we brought young Luke Wolfenden on, who went out to Swindon on loan. So then when I brought NCR in, that was the second game of the season, Rotherham. Mm. And then we got Pennington just before transfer deadline day. So the recruitment took too long in terms of that and trying to put a squad together that it needed to happen sooner and things took a little bit longer 
Uh, can, can it happen sooner? Uh, it strikes me that a lot of the stuff like Waghorn getting dragged out and your own purchases, uh, two of the players from Shrewsbury, Nolan and Enciala, that does take time, doesn't it? Yeah. I, some, some that no. I don't think they could have happened quicker. Others, yeah. Just heading into the season, obviously a tough start and lots of lots of changes happening. Personnel still coming in, still going out. You spoke earlier about how you see the game in batches of six, so you certainly didn't have your head in the sand about, oh, things are going great. No. Um, just in terms of, say, after 10 games, when you really are struggling to pick up points already, it felt like you tried a lot of different personnel. There's quite a lot of changes game by game. Was that no. Was that just trying to find the right combination? Was that feeling a bit let down by players week by week or it's one of those ones where if things are going well you'd say oh he rotates the squad really well but when yeah. things go badly it get, you say oh they're chopping and changing too much I think at that stage of the season don't get me wrong and I said at, at Shrewsbury for large parts of the team was pretty settled that's what you want to work with now I appreciate people might have the argument that you should have oh I should have stuck with the team um, and give it time to grow and develop that's fine, but I'm also a manager that has always said to his players that if you deserve, if you're doing the business, you're in it, but the squad is important. And I felt that the other people needed to step in. You know, same way a lot of the signings that I made, I was hoping that they would have been introduced, not all of them, but some of them. I didn't expect them all to go into the team at once and suddenly it all worked out. Um, I was hoping that they might have come into a better you know, a team that was functioning better, where the senior players were particularly playing well. But that wasn't the case. Mm. So, you know, there's lots and lots of reasons, some small, some more obvious than others, to, to why it didn't work. Um, but I think it was always a tough job. Everyone said to me, it was a really tough job for, for whether that was me or someone else. And I think having now left the club and... You know, clearly keeping an eye on what's happening to them because I haven't got bad feeling towards them. Um, it's still proving difficult with some different players in again. You know, I said all along the one shining light for me is that they've got some good young players coming mm. through that added to those that I'd brought in and then some senior players. I think the, there is something that could be there. Something they're really proud of the academy there and. Uh, a group of players between 18 and 21 who are very highly thought of. Was that the best group of young players you've, you've seen, you've worked with, obviously having come all the way up from, from non-league? Um, and if I can push you to, to make a prediction, which one of them do you think is the real jewel in the crown? And there's a lot talked about Andre Dazelle. He's had such a tough time with injuries. Same with Teddy Bishop. Uh, he played really well the other day for the first yeah. team. Which one of those do you think's really got something special? You've obviously got Downs and, and Lancaster I think as well. Those two in particular have got undoubted talent. Teddy, I think, came on against Exeter um, for about twenty minutes. I think that was it. Wasn't fit. You've got Emir Hughes there, who was a bit older, but another. No one, I think, even questions his ability, but no one can get him fit. So these were other difficulties thrown into the mix as well. Um, Dazelle. They seem to be a, a thing that we were got something against him. I think he's actually played more for me than he has a next manager. So I'm not sure what I got against him. Um, but I'd struggled to get fit. In my opinion, he hadn't been 
given the right program to get back to where he needed to be. Fantastic attitude, did all the work, but was struggling clearly. Um, but he's a very talented footballer. It's just whether or not he can totally get over that injury 100%. Mm. And I think he needs to be in a team playing a certain way to get the best out of him. Uh, last question, because I've already taken up far too much of your time and I'm so grateful for it. Um, you are yourself still a young manager, just like those guys are still young players. So uh, you're looking to get back into a manager role, I, I imagine. But yeah. my last question is what's next? What are you looking for? What are you hoping for? I'd like to join a football club where you feel that there's a genuine chance of, of progressing and, and improving. I think that would be the ideal scenario is where you can really feel that you can have an impact on a club and move it forward. The difficulty is being given the time. It, we, you know, I was chatting on the way down here today and speaking about clubs always talk about trying to build something, trying to grow something, develop. How many really stick to that plan? They just go and get another manager and... You know, it's it's a very difficult um, job. Do you have to pick the pick the owner? Well, people again have <laughs> been on the LMA courses and things like that, and they talk about pick your owner. Now, I'd love to be able to do that, but I'm not <laughs> Mourinho or um, you know someone like Sir Alex Ferguson or some Wenger. I'm, I'm Paul Hurst, who you know knows that he's going to have to go back down the ladder to then try to get back up. Um, and there's so many jobs that you look at, you know, from the outside. I'm not saying that I'm think that you'd even think about applying for that. You know, these problems are. But at the end of the day, I love football. I enjoy being a manager. I enjoy working with players. But that's what it's about now. It's about trying to find somewhere, hopefully, that's got a group of players that are your type of people that are willing to commit to, to the way that you want to work. Have maybe the same values. And I think my career has shown that that can bring success. Um, it's just trying to, like I said, find the, the place that fits. But I might not have that choice. At the minute, I've got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for sitting down with us, Paul, and for making your Not The Top 20 podcast debut. I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, no, it's great. Thank and you. Uh, hopefully the next time we talk, it will be in your new role, wherever that may be. And we can get the inside scoop on, uh, on, on what's looking good um, when you get that opportunity. Fingers crossed. Thank you.